It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 218 for November 14th, 2010. Recorded November 12th. When the time changes, as it did last week, it can be difficult keeping track of what time it is and where. Some, most, or all of Europe exited daylight time a week before North America did this year, and a few areas within the United States don't observe daylight time at all. That means the time in Phoenix is the same as in Denver for about half of the year, and the same as in Los Angeles for about the other half of the year. Fortunately, websites exist to help match your time with the time in other parts of the world. Some sites do a lot more, and I'd like to tell you about one of them. Timeanddate.com goes far beyond the basic what-time-is-it-there site and includes a wealth of information that's useful if you need to work with someone who's located halfway around the world. Calling Australia from the United States, for example, is a bit of a challenge because when it's during the business day in Australia... It's after offices are closed here. With a website such as this in your toolkit, you don't have to spend as much time finding out which areas use daylight time and when the time changes are effective and calculating all the differences. Or if I need to speak with someone in Bangalore, India, on November 20th when it's 9 in the morning in Bangalore, I know that I'll need to make that call at 9.30 p.m. on the 19th, the day before here, because Bangalore's time is UTC plus five and a half hours, and the time in Columbus is UTC minus 5 for a total difference of 10 and a half hours. The website helpfully even offers a find suitable time to call between Bangalore and Columbus. The resulting color-coded list recommends the most appropriate times for both locations. Time conversion used to be difficult, or at least tricky. The easiest option, of course, would be to do what airlines do, just have everyone use UTC, Universal Coordinated Time, which purists say should not be confused with Greenwich Mean Time, or GMT. GMT is also referred to as Zulu. UTC and GMT are totally different, but they're also exactly the same, give or take a few thousandths of a second. So if we really want to get lost in the weeds on this subject, UTC is based on International Atomic Time, or TAI, with leap seconds added at irregular intervals to compensate for the Earth's slowing rotation. Leap seconds are used to allow UTC to closely track UT1, the mean solar time, at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. All right, unless you're a scientist who is concerned with astonishingly precise time measurements, these differences are unimportant. But figuring out time zones may be important to you. If timeanddate.com did nothing more than display the time of day and date for various locations on the planet, it would be useful, but common. It's the site's other features that make it a real standout. The site allows you to establish viewing preferences, but these will be lost if you delete the site's cookie from your browser, and the customization won't be available if you use the site from another computer. To avoid those problems, you can register. There's no charge. The site's owners say that they won't sell your email address, and your customizations will then work from any computer. In addition, more customizations are possible, so I registered. 
When you register, you can specify or omit a password. If you don't set a password, then anyone who knows your email address can use or change your settings. The site recommends that you use another password here than you use for other systems. I would take that warning to indicate the password storage may not be particularly secure. Use a password here that you don't use elsewhere, or at least one that you don't use for important things like banking, for example. Well, I thought I would take a look at McMurdo Station in Antarctica, and its presence confirms that time and date has information for all continents on the planet. How much information is available varies from one locale to another. When I checked, the temperature was 22 degrees at McMurdo Station in Antarctica, and the sky was overcast. The weather for the next several days, generally clear with highs between 10 and 20, lows from 2 to minus 17. Currently, the sun is up all day, and the moon is up all day. The ability to create a personal world clock is useful. I've set up a page that shows me the time in Columbus, along with the current time in Arizona, California, Paris, Moscow, London, and Saudi Arabia. In some ways, timeanddate.com reminds me of Google Earth. It can be an amazing time sink. But you will be exposed to a wealth of information that is interesting, even if it's not always immediately useful, including the sun calculator, the moon calculator, and moon phases. For example, on Saturday, November 6th, the sun rose at 8.07 a.m. and set at 18.24, or 6.24 p.m. And I do prefer the 24-hour clock representation because there's never a question about whether it's morning or afternoon. On Sunday, November 7th, when we were back on Standard Time, the sun rose at 7.08 and set at 17.23, or 5.23. I also know that the next full moon will be on November 21st, and that a lunar eclipse will occur that same day. That will be the final eclipse of 2010. And according to timeanddate.com, this eclipse will be visible to observers in North America and Western South America. The eclipse's total phase lasts for 72 minutes, the total eclipse begins at 7 hours, 40 minutes, and 47 seconds UT, and the point of the greatest eclipse occurs at 8 hours, 16 minutes, and 57 seconds UT. Just what I needed. Another time sink. A longtime friend who uses a very old version of Dreamweaver to maintain his site, which consists of several hundred pages, said that he's thinking of starting to maintain his code in Barebones Software's Text Wrangler, but he wondered if he would be better off upgrading to the latest Dreamweaver version instead, or possibly switching to WordPress. He asked for my opinion. You'll probably not be surprised to learn that I had one. I have used every single version of Dreamweaver from Macromedia version 2 to the present day. I think I skipped the original and was still using Microsoft's front page back then. Current version is CS5. I have never seen any serious problems with the application, and each new version just gets better. Much of the structure of the program is controlled by JavaScript, which can be slow. It's interpreted, not compiled. But overall, there's nothing I would consider other than Dreamweaver right now. And at that point, I was going to suggest that he read my review of Dreamweaver. That's when I found out I didn't have one. Somehow, I had managed to write and talk about most of the other CS5 components, but oddly, not Dreamweaver. The one that I've used the most and the longest. So let's fix that. 
As for writing your own HTML in a text editor, I asked, why? I can't think of any good reason to waste time that way, particularly with the coming HTML5, which is a replacement for the much-anticipated but never realized XHTML. Although HTML5 isn't as punitive as XHTML would have been, you still need to create properly organized code, and it is very easy to make silly mistakes in a plain text editor. Because Dreamweaver's CSS tools are much better than they used to be, I find that I use a text editor much less for cascading style sheet work than I did in the past. I do still use UltraEdit whenever I have to do anything with JavaScript, though. And I use WordPress for TechBiter today, but I would never consider it for such a site at TechBiter because it applies far too many constraints on how things may be presented. I want the control. I couldn't recommend WordPress for his site either because it's really intended more as a blogging tool. If you want to create a basic WYSIWYG site with few constraints and on a budget, I can recommend Zara Web Designer, which I wrote about back in June. But you mentioned several hundred pages, I said. TechBiter now has several thousand pages, and every year or two I change the basic look and feel, update the underlying technology and such. The huge advantage Dreamweaver offers is the ability to create templates that can maintain the header and footer information, menus, and other elements that are consistent from page to page. In addition, there are library items. These are chunks of text or graphics that you want to be the same on various pages. Sometimes a library item might be included in a template, other times, library items are just included on individual pages. Between these two extremely powerful features, Dreamweaver makes changes that might otherwise take hours or days in just a minute or two. A website designer I know once took over a website that had been created for a Los Angeles business by a graphic designer. The site was excellent visually, but the graphic designer knew little about HTML. The client's phone number changed twice within two years, and the website designer had to manually edit each of the approximately 500 pages in the site. This was boring for the website designer and expensive for the client. So the designer asked for permission to modify the site, to retrofit it with Dreamweaver templates and libraries. And since then, there have been several other site-wide changes that could be processed and tested in one hour instead of two days. A recent review of Dreamweaver CS5 by PC Magazine said, and I quote, Adobe's web design program Dreamweaver digs deeper with its CS5 version, at least for advanced users, but beginners may need or want more help than Adobe's increasingly complex tool is primed to provide. Although that is true, it should also be self-evident. Expecting a complex tool to be child's play to master makes about as much sense as expecting the average rush hour Chevy driver to hop into a car at the Indianapolis 500 and win on the first time out. Tools are complex. It takes time to learn how to use them. And if you're not willing to invest that time, then you have no business trying to use them. It seems to me that there are two kinds of people who will be attracted to purchase Dreamweaver, those who have been using the program for a while and want to upgrade to the latest version, and those who have learned how to operate Dreamweaver in design school and who need the program for their work. The average office worker should not be in the market for a program such as this any more than the average office worker would be in the market for a four-color web press to print a monthly newsletter. Dreamweaver is for designers. If the designer is asked to create a site that the average office worker can update, 
The recommendation should be to develop in Dreamweaver and then outfit the office workers with Adobe Contribute. That's an application that allows them to modify the site's content without wrecking the design. For those who know their way around HTML and CSS, Dreamweaver's Inspect Mode gives you a visual representation of borders, margins, and paddings that surround all of the elements. In other words, it's the box model. Dreamweaver color codes the various pieces so you can quickly see where any problems are. And then there's live view that goes beyond the traditional what-you-see-is-what-you-get view and shows you what the page will actually look like in the browser. And beyond that, it enables site navigation, and if you've enabled a web server on your local machine, even displays server-side functions and dynamic data. Dreamweaver CS5 supports Subversion. That's an open-source version control system. So when multiple site designers are working on a single site, each will know which files the others are working on. And additionally, if you're using Dreamweaver to maintain sites based on Joomla, WordPress, or Drupal, you'll find that Dreamweaver has code hinting for those platforms, too. And because browsers are, at best, inconsistent, one very welcome feature is integration with Adobe's CS Live Browser Lab. Now you can preview your site in Firefox, any version 2 and above, Internet Explorer, versions 6 through 8, Safari, version 3 and above, and Chrome 3, all without leaving Dreamweaver. The bottom line for Dreamweaver CS5, in the words of the old Prego spaghetti sauce commercial from the mid-1980s, it's in there. Five cats. Dreamweaver continues to be the web development application that comes with all the tools needed to create first-class sites. Adobe has done an excellent job of integrating Dreamweaver into the Creative Suite family, and each new version further solidifies the overall suite's position as the premier development tool for print and web designers. For more information, visit the Adobe Dreamweaver website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. <laughs> It seems that every time some long-expected blockbuster movie arrives, so does a flurry of criminal activity designed to steal personal information, identity, and cash. The first of the final two-movie episode of the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, will be in theaters starting November 19th. For scammers, this is as real a Thanksgiving present as they can imagine. But it's easy not to be a turkey. Just practice not clicking. If somebody sends you a message offering a website where you can see the movie for free, your best move is not to click the link. As obvious as this probably seems, sometimes we forget. Or our kids forget. Or maybe our kids don't know any better. It is up to parents to educate the kids. PC Tools, a publisher of antivirus, anti-spyware, and security applications, says that movie premieres such as this are commonly used as bait by criminals. You might follow a link to a special offer that will, of course, require you to fill out an application blank with lots of personal information. Or you might be offered a Harry Potter toolbar that's actually a malicious application that monitors keystrokes and steals usernames and passwords. Or you might be told you can win something, maybe a computer, maybe an iPad, maybe an iPhone. Or that because you're in a special group, you qualify to receive something for free. You find out later, of course, the free item requires you to fill out many forms and agree to do lots of other things. And by the time you actually qualify for the free item, if you ever do, you'll have paid far more than it's worth. 
The folks at PC Tools provided some images that illustrate the point. You'll find them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. URLs on those pages have been obliterated. And again, I do want to point out that these were provided by the folks at PC Tools. They're not screens that I captured. You'll see an example of a site that offers to allow you to download the movie. You may think that you're putting one over on Warner Brothers, but in fact you'll be giving some fraudster permission to take over your computer and steal information from you. It could be a very expensive movie ticket. Another example shows a site called Movie Collections. Collections is misspelled, by the way. The spelling-challenged site wants you to complete a survey to unlock the movie. (laughs) Good luck with that. Or you might end up at a site that offers you a free iPad just for joining. The site is free. The iPod is free. Now, how does that business model work? Is it, we lose money on every sale, but we make it up in volume? There is no such thing as a free iPad. So you fill out form after form after form, and finally you get to the point where they're going to show you the movie. Except you don't see the movie. You just see another message. If this page is still locked, it says, try another offer. In other words, hey, sucker, did you hear they took gullible out of the dictionary? The key thing to remember is that anyone who offers you a free copy of a film that's not even yet in theaters is, by definition, a crook. If you want some good information about the upcoming Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows movie, you'll find some links to sites that are legitimate on the TechBiter Worldwide website. These include the official Warner Brothers movie site, the Internet Movie Database, Wikipedia, Apple's iTunes site, and the author's website, too. As for all those emails from fraudsters... Just don't click. In short circuits, a couple of months after I decided to opt for the Kindle and its high-quality monochrome screen, Barnes & Noble has released a color nook. This raises the question of whether color is necessary for these devices. It may depend on what you read. I can't see the advantage of color for most of what I read, fiction and nonfiction books that, if they have pictures will generally have black and white pictures. Text on a color screen will be less crisp and clear than monochrome text because of the way RGB displays work. So for me, color really isn't a big deal. I doubt there will be very many coffee table books on e-readers. Those are the oversized books with lots of pictures in them. Those just aren't going to be hits on portable devices. Maybe comic books or what's being called graphic novels these days might be. For me, the advantage of minimal power, which leads to long battery life and very sharp displays that can be read in sunlight, tip the balance in favor of monochrome. But color is coming. It'll be an important addition for children's books and probably for cookbooks. I still think that art books are going to be a long shot on those little devices. A Chinese company says it will soon use technology from e-ink. That's the company whose black and white technology is used in virtually all of the current e-book readers to create a color display. Now, it's true, as I noted, that Barnes & Noble has announced its Color Nook, but the Color Nook is a device based on RGB technology. It'll use more power, and the display will be less clear than devices based on e-ink. But color is clearly something that is going to sell. Those who have seen the coming crop of color readers say the colors are muted and the display isn't particularly crisp and clear. That's because the system uses a black and white display that is overlaid with a color filter. So long battery life is maintained and the display still can be read in bright light. 
The Chinese company, Hanvon, is the primary seller of electronic readers in China, but the company is essentially unknown outside China. The company's color product will have a screen that is just slightly less than 10 inches diagonally for less than $500. And it'll include both Wi-Fi and wireless 3G connectivity. In a move that clearly illustrates the ascendancy of electronic books, the New York Times reported this week in an article by reporter Julie Bosman that the New York Times will begin publishing ebook bestseller lists in 2011. Wait, is there an echo in here? This is a paper that doesn't report on its own activities very often, so this must be a particularly groundbreaking event. That or it was a slow news day. According to the article, the newspaper has published bestseller lists since 1935, and these are, in the newspaper's own words, widely considered the industry standard. Although the article did allow that lists are also published by Publishers Weekly, a trade publication, and other newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times and USA Today. The Times will compile ratings from weekly data provided by publishers, chain bookstores, independent booksellers, and online retailers, among other sources. Other sources? Who else might sell books? And will this take into account books offered for free by retailers such as Amazon.com or books lent by libraries? One of the other sources will be Royalty Share. That's a San Diego company that tracks data and aggregates sales information for publishers. Royalty Share will, in the words of the Times, offer an additional source of independent corroboration. According to the article, ebook sales have risen steeply in 2010, and this is attributed to Amazon's Kindle and Apple's iPad. According to the Association of American Publishers, which receives sales data from publishers, ebook sales in the first nine months of 2010 were $304.6 million, up from $105.6 million from the same period in 2009. The Times points out, somewhat redundantly, that this is a nearly 190% increase. To accommodate the new list, the New York Times will modify the book review section of the Sunday newspaper. There are already 14 lists, including those for fiction, nonfiction, and advice books in hardcover and paperback, as well as children's books and graphic books. So this is going to be number 15. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.